Before I begin, I just want to share with you a story that I read from an author. There was a former undersecretary of defense who was invited to a speech at a large conference of about 1,000 people. He was standing on stage with his cup of coffee and a styrofoam cup. And he, while he was giving his speech, he gave, gave a sip of his coffee. He smiled and looked down at that styrofoam cup. And then he went off script and he said this. You know, last year, I spoke at this same here conference. Last year, I was, the, I was still the undersecretary. And when I spoke here last year, they flew me in on business class. And when I arrived at the airport, somebody was waiting for me to take me to my hotel. He took me to my hotel, and they already checked me in and just took me straight up to my room. The following day, I came downstairs and someone was waiting for me down in the lobby to greet me. They drove me to, the van to this venue, and they took me through the back entrance into the green room and handed me a cup of, of coffee and a beautiful ceramic mug. He then said, I'm no longer the undersecretary. I flew in coach. I took the taxi here to my hotel. I checked myself in, and when I, when I entered into the lobby this morning, I took another taxi to get to this venue. I came through the front door and found my way to the backstage, and when I asked someone, do you have coffee? He pointed me to the coffee machine in the corner, and I poured myself a, a cup of coffee in this styrofoam cup. He concluded this introduction to this speech by saying the lesson is that the ceramic mug was never meant for me. It was meant for the position that I held. I deserve the styrofoam cup. So as we will see today, this story of humility is also reflected in the Gospel of John as we look at the life of John the Baptist. And as we read this narrative together, I want us to be focusing on this particular thing. The main idea is this. In our narrative, I want us to focus that John the Baptist's humility and passion serve as a picture of what it means to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is a witness here. Now, in our day and age, we have conceptions of what witnesses are. But in Bible times, witnesses were vitally important. Unlike today, they back then did not have any forensic evidence. So everything that happened within the court was based on the testimony of two to three witnesses. The Gospel of John in particular places a huge emphasis on the role of eyewitnesses. There's seven in, in this book. And giving, and giving true accounts. John the Baptist serves as one of those faithful witnesses. He, simplif he simply testified of what he saw with his two eyes. He was a witness that spoke the truth, nothing but the truth, no more, and nothing less with God as his ultimate wisdom uh, witness. And so with this, I want to leave with you two points 
in our sermon today. Number one, we see that a faithful witness has a humble attitude. So a humble attitude of a faithful witness. And number two, a passion to share the message and person of Jesus Christ. As we look at John the Baptist, when you're reading scripture, you realize that this guy is a really weird dude. He wears camel's hair, camel's hair. His diet consists of locusts and honey. And he ministers out in the outdoors at the Jordan River as he, as he preaches fiery sermons and he baptizes people. That was quite peculiar at that day to be baptized as a Jew in the Jordan River. As the crowds grew larger and larger, it brought more attention to his ministry and especially from the religious crowd. The religious crowd wanted to understand what John the Baptist was all about. But these leaders did not come with eyes to learn. They didn't come with eyes of acceptance or hearts to receive his message. They came as skeptics, not to learn from him, but to label him. They were wondering, is this guy a part of our tribe? Now, why were the priests and Levites so skeptical of John the Baptist? Well, partially, I think it was because the type of Messiah that these, these people wanted was one that took on the form of a political figure, one who would overthrow the Roman occupiers, one who could, they could come alongside and they could be at, the, at his right hand. But this is not the message that John the Baptist gave them. Instead of, instead of preaching of a physical salvation from Roman government, he taught them of the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. Instead of talking about their outward enemies and their, the injustices that were given to them, he talked about the inward injustices of the heart toward God. The more that John preached, the more his popularity grew. The religious leaders took this as a threat to their own law and order. We see in verse 19, our account. It says, this was John's testimony or witness when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? Firstly, I want you to see that his humility is shown by him pointing away from himself. The Jewish religious leaders kept their skeptical, watchful eye on John the Baptist. They interrogated him. They questioned his legitimacy. And in a sense, they put John the Baptist on trial. It's almost as if he's in a courtroom. You see this in verse 20. He didn't deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. You can hear in John the Baptist's tone that he is very guarded in these accusational questions that these leaders are, are giving to him. Every question that was asked him he would give a cryptic or evasive response. 
It was as if he didn't want to give them the information that they wanted to hear. This frustrated them. So they changed their tactic. Instead of accusing him, are you this, are you that, are you this, are you that? They change their tune and they say in verse 22, okay, what do you say about yourself? It says in verse 22, who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? In answering this, he shows his healthy recognition of who he is. You see in verse 23, he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. So John the Baptist responds here by saying that he is a voice. Now this isn't just any voice. This is the voice that is spoken of in Isaiah 40 verse 3, which says, There will be a voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness and make straight high, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Now in its original context, that verse points out the hope that is to come to the future children of Israel as a new prophet comes to the scene and is, is preaching a new exile, a new return to God. Now I want you to notice something about this return. Unlike the exile of, of, uh, in Exodus, or unlike the exile in the times of Daniel, where they were going back to the land, this was not a promise for them to go to God or to a, a, a promised land. It was actually God coming to us. John the Baptist saw his role in this redemptive story as one who would prepare the way of the Lord. And the baptism symbolized one of repentance as they were um, prepared for the Lord's coming. Now, I want you to look at this implication of what needed to be prepared, what barriers needed to be taken away. God gives us, or God gives John the Baptist an important job to prepare. What is he supposed to prepare? Well, it wasn't the fact that they were to prepare by getting rid of these outward enemies. It wasn't an outward obstacle. It was an obstacle that needed to be taken care of inwardly. The obstacle was not outward, but inward, it was the people's sins. The way that John the Baptist made way for the Lord to come was through the preaching and through individuals' repentance. As we think of, of, of this, perhaps you may, you may be thinking to yourself, yes, those were the obstacles back then, but what are the obstacles in our lives? I think, personally, we could think of the obstacles of unrepentant sin, lack of forgiveness toward our neighbors, lack of discipline, a consistency of being in God's word and praying, 
being distracted by the busyness of life or being okay with unresolved relational issues. Often, God wants to till the ground of our hearts and he wants to work in our lives, yet our, our, our lives are hindered by some of these barriers. And sadly, this morning, we read in this text that these religious authorities had obstacles in their hearts as well. They couldn't receive the words of John the Baptist that were filled with grace and truth. They lacked faith. It seems that they were more worried about what John the Baptist thought about himself than what God called him to do. Instead, they approached, they approached him with skepticism, and the primary motivation of why they were asking all these questions was to give answers to their superiors rather than hearing and understanding the message that John the Baptist gave. They were not open to the truth. They were too focused on their duties. Verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? They asked him, of what authority are you doing these things? Verse 26, he tells them exactly where his authority lies. Verse 26 says, I baptize with water. John answered them, someone stands among you, but you, don't, you do not know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. They ask him of what authority he comes to, to them with and what authority he is able to do these religious rituals. And he basically tells them of the authority that he does not have. John the Baptist views himself in a sense of not having any authority of, in himself at all. He is not even worthy to perform the most menial task. So in the context um, there, there was a saying that, that said that disciples were to do everything that, ma that the master told you to do except for the lowly task that is given to servants, which is to take off your, the master's sandals. So that's, that's the standard. And John the Baptist puts himself on the lowest shelf. He puts himself lower than a servant. This statement is significant because it shows us that John recognizes that he is not the main focus of the message, but instead he is only the preparer of the way, who, of the one who is the message incarnate. Thirdly, so up to this point, we've seen that John the Baptist is filling his role as a faithful witness of Jesus through his humility by pointing others, not to himself, but to, re but to recognize his calling. It says, and uh, for, for them, not only, not only to recognize his calling, but to recognize their calling as well. I think it's quite interesting what it says in verse 26. It's almost like he's egging them on to, uh, to truth. He says in verse 26 to the religious leaders, someone stands among you, but you don't know him. John is pointing out the irony that these religious experts did not even understand 
that the Lord was in their midst. He is suggesting that even though they were the ones that were supposed to be knowledgeable of these things, they don't even understand that Jesus, God, the God-man, is there in their midst. For illustration's sake, um, actually, this, this has to do with uh, one, of, one of your friends, Aaron. Um, Rachel and I, we, we, went, we went with the Hollies to uh, an art museum, and we were looking at a, a number of different art that was displayed from a famous artist. And as we were going through the, the different uh, stages of the building, it was just beautiful to see um, what this artist put together. What, what he, he did was, uh, he or she did was, um, she, she took the elements of, uh, of nature and, and sculpted them in, in such a way that it looked like the paintings that were on the wall. And... Um, what was interesting was some random person came up to us and me and Tyler engaged him and we were talking and it was just really cool just to, like, he, it, it was, he was just too interested in us and we were like, why, why is he asking us all these questions? And so as time went on, we, he was talking and after he asked about our family and why we came to this museum, he said, oh, by the way, I'm the person who made this art. <laughs> and so... That's, that's what I think of when I, when I think of these religious leaders. Like you're, you're talking to the, the person who is the artist. And here Jesus is in their midst and they don't even know it. Sadly, these religious leaders could not see that Jesus was, was there. I think this, uh, this text comes as a warning to us in our spiritual blindness as well. I think we've sung a lot of good theology. We've heard spirit-filled prayers. We've read a number of different texts that are to direct our attention to, to God. But there are sometimes times in our lives where barriers keeps us from preparing or making room for what God has for us to learn in our lives. What God wants to shape us, challenge us in. And so... As we look at this text, let it, it be a reminder that um, we should be open to the graces of, of what the Lord has for us in his word. And we should also be open to the grace of when others in our life point out those inconsistencies as well. See that as a grace. See that as a means in which God is allowing the word or other people to speak into your life, to make way for the way of the Lord, to prepare our hearts. Point number two, not only do we see that John is a faithful witness in his humility, but he also proves that he is a faithful witness in this passion of sharing the message in person of Jesus Christ. We see that this passion of pointing to Christ is found in verse 29 says here, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John points out that Jesus is the Lamb of God, just like we have sung here this morning. This is a quite an, an odd description of, of God, but it's one that is seen all throughout the Old Testament, and it has much 
significance to it. One of the first places that we see a lamb is in Genesis 22. When it talks about a substitutionary lamb, where Abraham is to sacrifice his son, and as he is walking in obedience of what God has called him to do, at the very last moment, there is a ram who, who is to take his son's place. Abraham's one and only son was, was saved, in a sense, by this substitutionary lamb. We also see at the, at later in the Old Testament, in one of the older books of the of of uh, or one of one of the later uh, books in Isaiah 53, there's also talk of a lamb. It says in verse seven of verse 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. Verse 10. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely and when you make him a guilt offering. So I gave you the two bookends. Um, I gave you a Genesis account and I gave you an Isaiah account. But what I want us to see, the overarching uh, narrative of how we're supposed to think about lambs is that in the Old Testament, lambs were offered as sacrifices. A lamb was slaughtered as the person would lay his, his hand on the sacrifice, signifying and symbolizing that his sin was being passed on or he would be identifying himself with that lamb that would take on the sin in his stead. And now John pronounces that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want you to notice what it says at the end, that phrase, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is more than just the people of Israel. This is for every person, every Gentile, Jew and Gentile alike, who would come to believe and swear allegiance to King Jesus. This means that Jesus came for you and for me in this room. He's come to save us from our darkness, from our sin, from our guilt. He wants to be our substitutionary sacrifice in our place. We see that passion of John the Baptist as he points people to Christ, but we also see the passion in John the Baptist as he continues to show that he is developing in his understanding of who Christ is. Earlier in the text, we talked about the irony of how the religious people didn't understand or did not know who Jesus was. But in all humility, he shows his growth as well. It says in John 1.31, John the Baptist says, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he may be revealed to Israel. Well, obviously, John the Baptist was, was cousins with Jesus, but he didn't know at this particular moment of time that Jesus was the Messiah. It says in verse uh, 33, again, he says the same thing. 
I did not know him, but he sent me to baptize. The God, God the Father sent me to baptize with, with water, and he told me, the one who you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, a prophet of God who was preparing the way of the Lord, did not know certain things about his own, his own ministry. He only knew what was given to him at the time. God gave him the, the command. God gave him the purpose of preaching and baptizing people with water to prepare the way of the Lord. However, after baptizing Jesus, John then saw that it didn't make sense at the time. He, he wanted Jesus to baptize him, but taking on what uh, his cousin wanted him to do, he said, no, I, I want you to baptize me. And that's when, that's when his eyes were opened. That's when he finally realized that the Spirit came down as a dove and not only stayed on, uh, came on him, but remained on him. This knowledge that Jesus was the Messiah was, was revealed only through his obedient work of being a faithful witness. I thought it quite interesting as I was reading this passage of how many I am nots or I don't knows are in this passage. Verse 20, I am not the Messiah. Verse 21, I am not Elijah. Verse 21 again, I am not the prophet. Verse 26, you did, you did not know him. Verse 27, I am not worthy to untie his sandal. Verse 31, I didn't know him. And verse 33, I did not know him. One of the things that this passage teaches us is that the Christian life and our discipling of other people is filled with a lot of I am nots and I don't know. The focus of our Christian lives is not to point people to ourselves as if we have all the answers. God allows us to be faithful witnesses with the different uh, revelations that God has given us through his word. We are not to point people to us because we are not filled with all wisdom and knowledge. We are to point others uh, and their spiritual growth to the one who can fill them, which is Christ. This should encourage us as Christians because we may be wondering today as we serve as witnesses of, of God and as disciplers of others, is my ministry effective? I remember before when I would be the person that was asked to do Bible studies and I would be thinking to myself, oh man, what if they asked me this question? I might not know the answer to. I think it's freeing to know that even John the Baptist, with all the knowledge that he had and, and the ministry that God gave him, he did not know a lot of things. I think it's okay for us as Christians to disciple others and be discipled by others 
who don't know everything. So just in the same way that we are supposed to give grace to ourselves, knowing that we are in a state of not knowingness, may we also extend that grace to others. As a church planner, I've, I've learned that I don't know a lot about church planning. And um, I think of your godly leaders here today. They know a lot of things, but they don't know everything. And they're only trying to work with the pieces that God has given them. And so in the same way that I want you to give grace to yourself, that you are not knowing, but you're on this journey to continue to know and follow God, I pray that you would give the same grace to your leaders as well. Because we don't know everything. We're still on this journey. We're we're learning things on the way. And hopefully, Lord willing, we're godlier people and more knowledgeable people as we go on in this process. But the most important thing about John the Baptist's ministry is that he points and proclaims Christ. It says in verse 32, And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. Verse 33, The one you see the Spirit descending on and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is significant because in the Old Testament, it talks about this spirit baptism. Let me just give you an example. In Ezekiel 36, verse 24, it says, Yahweh says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. John the Baptist, as important as his ministry was, he could only baptize with water that signified repentance. Jesus comes with more than just water. He baptizes people with the Holy Spirit. It's the type of baptism that changes lives. I was listening to um, this uh, psychologist talking about um, raising up your own children. And basically it was saying that we shouldn't think about raising up our children as if we're engineers, as if they're all blank slates for us to write on. They're not blank slates. They are little mini-me's that have this DNA all swirled up inside, and they they have all, all these things that give them certain intuitions to do certain things. Not only that, but we also have sin natures. And as much as I would tell my child to do something and they don't do it, um, it's, it's not ultimately up to me. But I, I thought it was really cool that even this psychologist was saying that we are not engineers of people. We are shepherds of people. We cultivate. Jesus is the one who does the work. 
Jesus is the one who changes. And we as shepherds and we as disciplers, we could only, we can't create, we can't create that in people's life, but we could create the environment that will allow people to bring those different heart changes. We are not engineers of ourselves either. As I was reading this passage, I was thinking about the ugliness in my own soul the ways that I can't even change myself as much as I, I try to will myself to try and change certain parts of my life or uh, different habits, and I really need God's grace. And in the same way that God has met me and given me joy in realizing that Jesus is the Holy Spirit baptizer who changes hearts, he can change our hearts as well. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? Have you ever been baptized by the Holy Spirit's power? Have you ever received Christ as the chosen one of Israel, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? He is calling each and every one of you in this room this morning to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A baptism that will help you to fight sin, live lives of forgiveness toward others, and to be faithful witnesses. So Jesus, we ask, Lord, that your spirit would reign in our hearts, that we would prepare our hearts and make way for your work to be done, Lord, and may there not be any barriers in its place so that we would be faithful witnesses of you. And as John the Baptist was a faithful witness of you, God, we just ask that you would help us to be faithful witnesses, proclaiming that you are the Lamb of God that takes away this in the world. And you are the Holy Spirit baptizer that changes people from the inside out. Thank you for these things in Christ, I pray. Amen.